afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to everything. This flight EI 406 to Rome. My name is Brian McIver, and I'm standing here at a boarding gate in Dublin Airport. I'm on my way to Rome to try to unravel the mysteries behind one of the most famous pieces of sacred music ever written. The original score of it disappeared many years ago, and yet performances of it have attracted the curiosity of listeners and singers ever since. I feel like a detective on his way to the scene of a crime. I know something very significant has happened, but I have minimal evidence and only the barest of hunches to go on. And this is what puts me in search of Musica Arcana, or the secret music of the Vatican, and Allegri's Miserere in particular. And I'll be doing this in the company of a priest and author, a scholar, a DJ, and a cast of characters including Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Felix Mendelssohn, and a certain Dr. Burney. This piece of music has had a very distinguished history. From the day it was written, it has been celebrated, and a disc of it made over 50 years ago has become one of the most well-known sacred music recordings in the world. I talked to various people about their reaction on hearing this piece of music for the first time. First, Sally Dunkley, singer, scholar, and member of the choir, The Sixteen. I remember very well the first time I heard the Allegri Miserere because, I guess like all of us, it made such an impression on me. I was about 14, I think, and my parents had just given me a radio for my bedroom, which was wonderful. And I turned it on early in the morning, kind of in my half-sleep, and heard these sounds unlike anything I've ever heard before at that time, or indeed since. Tim Thurston, early music lover and presenter of RT Lyric FM's sacred music programme, Gloria. It was just mind-blowing, really. Those soaring notes are quite astonishing, and when you hear them for the first time, I I remember just being blown away. Father Michael Collins, priest and author of a number of books about the Vatican and its history. I was about 15 at the time, and I heard it and thought it was one of the most magnificent pieces of music that I'd ever heard. The way the soprano line soars into the stratosphere, it's, it's very moving, and yet it's a very deeply human text, a cry of misery for the difficulty in which humans live. Father Michael was also my guide to Rome and the Vatican, and he took me to the place where it all started for Allegri. 
this is part of the original city. And the fora are over to the right-hand side, the famous Roman Forum, and we're making our way down towards the Pantheon, which is an old second-century Roman temple. The area itself would have been the district in which Allegri lived, and this is where he died. And we're on our way down to walk the streets that Allegri would have walked every day on his way to and from the Sistine Choir. And in particular, we're going to start our visit by going to see the church of San Luigi de Francesi, where he began his musical education as a chorister. The difficulty is we don't know what year Allegri was born because we have no baptismal records and there's no other civic notation of his birth. But scholars would, would work out that he probably was born between 1582 and 1584 because in 1591, on the 24th of May, his father enrolled him in the newly built church of San Luigi de Francesi, which was um, a church frequented by French people and had been built with the largesse of Queen Catherine de' Medici. And he started there uh, probably as a seven-year-old boy and he continued until 1591, in May of 1591, when he left the choir because his voice was beginning to descend and mature. He took me to the church at the centre of Rome where Allegri's musical life started. Interestingly, this church had a connection with Caravaggio. We're at the Contarelli Chapel, which was a family chapel, and Cardinal Matteo Contarelli commissioned a chapel in honour of St Matthew, his patron saint, which was the family chapel. And Caravaggio, when he came here at the end of the 16th century, won the commission for three canvases, the life, the writing of the gospel, and the martyrdom of St. Matthew. So these paintings were installed between 1599 and 1601 and interestingly we know that in 1601 Gregorio Allegri had come back as a young tenor to sing in the choir and he was here from May to the, through the summer of 1601 and this last canvas, the writing of the Gospel of St. Matthew, was installed in July of that year. So we can imagine that Gregorio Allegri must have come to look at this very set of canvases and been interested in the installation which was happening while he was a young man. He probably was in his uh, mid-teens at this stage, I suppose maybe about 16, 17 at the time when these were made. I imagine that the music which was favoured at that time, at the end of the 16th century, when, and this was a new church, remember, just newly built with a newly founded choir, I imagine that the music probably would have uh, tended towards the French repertoire. You may have had music by Josquin de Pré, Clemens Nonpapa, you may have had, had that type of music, possibly rather than the contemporary Italian music of the time of, let's say, Palestrina or the Spaniard, Vittoria.
Well, we're in the sanctuary and we're looking up on either side on our right hand and our left hand side. The choir gallery is split into two in front of the side altar. Behind us at the back of the church is the organ with a separate choir gallery. But the one that the young Allegri sang in was in this split choir. So the choir was able to be divided into two parts, soprano, tenor, alto, bass on either side. If you look up on our right hand side, and it's the same on the left, we've got a marble balustrade which is little openings in the, in the marble. And then above that, you've got a balcony, which is uh, a carved wooden balcony, which is gilt with gold. And that was to shield the congregation from looking at the singers. Because as you know, a choir, when it's performing or singing, uh, you've got children who are dropping pages. They're not paying attention. The choir master is probably slapping them or trying to grab their attention or trying to get them to sing properly and to make them look at him, keep the pace, etc. So that meant that the, from where we are now standing, the, choir, the choristers wouldn't be seen. And by the same token, the choristers wouldn't be able to look down in the congregation. Their job was to sing the music and to perform it properly to the praise of God and no other responsibility. So as we're looking, in both of these choir galleries, you could fit probably about 16, 20 singers at maximum. So I'd say the full choir would have been no more than 40 and probably a little bit less than that. Allegri's Miserere is part of a Holy Week ritual called Tenebrae. Father Michael explained what happened during the ceremony that took place in near darkness. Yes, Tenebrae was sung here in this church, like in all the Roman churches, in the last days of Holy Week. It commemorated the passion and the death of Christ. And the young Allegri would have participated in the office. It's a very, it's a very dramatic office, uh, a, a prayer service. The people came here in the evening uh, to celebrate the death of Christ. And during this celebration, candles were gradually extinguished at the high altar until the final candle was taken away to represent the arrest of Christ. And on Good Friday, at the moment of the words tenebrae factusunt, darkness was all over the land. It marks the death of Jesus. And there's a silence, and then everybody begins to bang their missile on the top of the pew, the wooden pew in, uh, at which they're kneeling. And the church would have reverberated with the sound of this, which was to represent the death of Christ. And many listeners may be familiar with this, uh, because the office of tenebrae is still performed in some churches not many, but in some churches today. Singer and scholar Sally Dunkley explained how the dramatic nature of Tenebrae gave rise to Allegri's composition. Those were very highly charged services and they became famous far outside the Sistine Chapel by the 18th century, late 17th century. They became famous as something that the gentleman on the grand tour of Europe should experience at first hand. And hence a sort of mythology starts building up. The most remarkable thing associated with Allegri's Miserere is the way that it was performed. There became a tradition of ornamenting the alternate, well, one verse in four, adding ornaments to the version that they started from. And these were not written down, or at least we don't have a record of them being written down until much, much, much later. But the ornaments were passed on from generation of singers, one to another, 
We know that they met on Monday of Holy Week to rehearse the ornaments. That's actually documented. And so the tradition can be passed on each year from one singer to another. And these ornaments were what made the piece so special and were what made the authorities at the Sistine Chapel really not want to let the music out of their possession. Rumour had it that people were threatened with excommunication if they let the Allegria Miserere secrets out of the chapel. Let's hear the start of Allegri's Miserere in a reconstruction devised by scholar Ben Byron Wigfield and performed by the Sixteen. What happened in the years after its composition is that singers ornamented the music and over time sang it at increasingly higher pitches. Here's an extract from the end of the piece. Most singers today who perform the Allegri Miserere would use a score that includes passages just like the one we heard, with its exciting high C at the end. But that's not what Allegri wrote. So I asked Andrew Johnston, Assistant Professor of Music at Trinity College Dublin, how he would describe the modern performing score and how it came about. It's been described as a Frankenstein's monster of a composition, stitched together from different bits of material that have been gleaned from all sorts of sometimes spurious sources. I'd rather think of it as uh, a very elaborate musical representation of a game of Chinese whispers that's gone over a very long time. The original message put out by Allegri has been distorted by whichever hands the message has gone through over the centuries. After the time of Palestrina the papal choir started admitting castrati 
these were male singers who had been uh, emasculated uh, prior to puberty so that their voices didn't change and they were able to continue to sing soprano and alto parts through, throughout their lives. It's a tradition of singing that belongs primarily to the opera house. It's something that comes in with Baroque music and opera in, in the early 17th century. castrato died over a century ago this is the nearest thing we can get to the sound that they made this performance has digitally combined the voice of a soprano with that of a countertenor it was devised and recorded for the soundtrack of the film farinelli a biography of the celebrated 18th century castrato the papal choir is the uh, last institution to retain castrati there seem to have been more and more castrati as time went on and by the 19th century the choir consisted mostly of uh, sopranos uh, and altos with very few tenors and basses and for that reason the allegri miserere seems to have been performed at a much higher pitch than allegri had composed it to suit the large number of sopranos and altos in the choir and there was another complication because there was no definitive score in circulation one was needed Enter Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Of course, the fact that the Sistine Chapel had an embargo on letting the music out was a sort of um, motivation to many people to want to um, get their hands on the music. Uh, The young Mozart, being toted round Europe as a prodigy, um, went to the Sistine Chapel with his father during Holy Week and heard the Allegri and went home and was able to write it out from memory. Amazing facility. And then went back the next day with the manuscript hidden in his hat to listen to it again to make sure he'd got it right. We know that from uh, a letter from Leopold Mozart, father of Wolfgang, um, writing home the next day saying, we went to the city chapel and... Andrew Johnson had a different view. Well, there's no doubt that Mozart is was the greatest musical genius we know of. Whether uh, writing down the Allegri Miserere was one of the genuine manifestations of that genius is rather more debatable. We only have his father Leopold's testimony for it that he performed this feat. But he did so at the age of 14 in 
in 1770. A few years earlier, he had been in London, um, where there were already circulating a few bootleg copies of the Allegri Miserere, and uh, we know that the piece was performed in London at this time. So when he wrote it down after hearing it in the Papal Chapel, he's possibly reconstructing uh, a score that he's already seen in London, uh, and this certainly isn't the certainly isn't necessarily the first and only time that he's heard the piece. I'm just very disappointed that we don't have what Mozart wrote down because uh, he would have uh, given us a snapshot of the piece uh, as it was being performed in 1770. And that was probably rather different from what Mendelssohn then heard in 1831 and what other people heard subsequently. After that, Charles Burney, the music historian, got hold of a version which he then published in Mm. 1771, though without the ornaments... Mendelssohn in the 1830s went to hear it and wrote down a version and I think that that is part of the story. There isn't any doubt that the singers at one point were singing a uh, high C. Uh, we have this on the authority of Felix Mendelssohn who when he was on tour in Italy in 1831 attended the Holy Week services uh, in the Sistine Chapel and then wrote down some of the music in letters first of all to his family and subsequently to his teacher, Karl Friedrich Zelter, in Berlin. And from these letters, we can see that the pitch at which the papal choir were then performing, the whole of Allegri's Miserere, absolutely all of it, was considerably higher than Allegri had composed it at. Originally, Allegri wrote it in G minor. Mendelssohn's report to his family of the first verse has it in B minor. And then when he writes to Zelter about it, following a few days in Naples, um, he starts writing out his extracts in C minor. Um, We can be pretty sure that Mendelssohn's a reliable witness. Uh, He's not likely to have uh, romanticised his account of this. I think it's possible that the pitch that the singers were using was somewhere between B minor and C minor. Uh, There's another report uh, by a a Roman um, priest uh, who published an edition of the Miserere in uh, 1840. This is Pietro Alfieri. He says that the music is transposed up by the papal choir by a major third, probably because there are so many soprano and alto castrati in the choir, it's more convenient for them to have it arranged for high voices in that way. That means that what would originally have been a high G in the embellishment to the choir two verses is by now verging on a high B or even a high C. Uh, And in his letter to Zelta, Mendelssohn writes out the variation with the high C in it and uh, speaks at length uh, about how effectively the high C was sung, how beautifully the note was produced uh, by the singer and how it seemed to go on uh, even uh, longer than the the, the singer actually sang it. He could still hear the high C uh, after the singer had started descending the scale.
But hold on, how do we wind up nowadays with a score that goes up to a high C? The rot seems to have set in with the first edition of Grove's Dictionary of Music, published in 1880, in which there is an entry by the musical scholar William Rockstro about the Miserere. And he gives the uh, music examples mostly in Allegra's original key of G minor. So when he's quoting verse 2, he begins in G minor. Then when he gets to the end of verse 2, he then quotes the variation as it is given to us by Mendelssohn with the high C. This is a mixture of two different keys, the G minor of Allegri's original and the C minor of Mendelssohn's quotation, because Mendelssohn is quoting from a performance of this piece in which all of the music seems to have been transposed uh, a major third or a fourth higher. Okay. The variation that uh, is given by Rockstra and Grove's Dictionary is tacked onto the end of the choir two verse, and it's a half-close, it's actually a variation that belongs at the end of the first half of the verse, not at the end of the second half. The variations that the papal choir tacked onto the end of the choir two verses were somewhat different. What we have uh, in most modern performing editions, however, is uh, a mixture of Allegri's original key and the embellishment, as notated by Mendelssohn, a fourth higher than the rest of the piece. If we really want that high C, we should maybe transpose the rest of the music up a perfect fourth as well. The high C is in the wrong key for the rest of the piece, and it's also in the wrong place. It's an embellishment that belongs at the end of the first half of the choir two verses and not at the end of the second half of the choir two verses. Uh, this mistake was first made in the uh, initial edition of Grove's Dictionary in 1880 by William Rockstrow, who wrote... Uh, a very interesting but somewhat misguided entry on the history of the Allegri Miserere. But the sins of the editors don't just stop there. Sally Dunkley explains. Somebody else copied that work. Somebody else copied it again. There was an English version in the 1930s published with the Topsy, and so it goes on. So the moral of the story is, of course, don't copy someone else's work. But hold on a moment. How and when did the text get into English? Well, it's a tradition that comes out of the English Reformation when the English Church abandoned Latin in favour of the vernacular. Uh, The exceptions were made in the universities because Latin was a second vernacular. It was a language that everybody spoke and understood in university circles. So even the Book of Common Prayer was translated into Latin uh, for use in college chapels. Uh, that's not to say it completely ousted uh, the vernacular, but a hundred years ago, if you wanted to hear Latin sung in King's College Chapel in Cambridge, you'd have to go on Friday. That was the only day of the week that they sang pieces in Latin. So irrespective of the language the piece had been composed in, if it was being sung on any other day of the week than Friday, it would be in English.
Richard Farron's 16th century anthem, Hide Not Thy Face From Us, O Lord, performed by the choir of King's College, Cambridge. So here's how it got to the score that was used in the recording conducted by David Wilcox and featuring Roy Goodman. I reckon's edition uh, it was uh, made for the English market uh, and it has the text translated into English uh, and it simply purports to be an edition for use in England uh, and Atkins um, makes no claims to have consulted any historical sources. Probably he reached down for a dusty old uh, copy of um, Grove's Dictionary and based its edition on the music that's printed there uh, in Rockstro's article. The Atkins edition is 1951, but it didn't take account of a lot of scholarship that had been done by German uh, musicology in the 1930s, which had referred to the original 17th century sources. Roy Goodman, who sang the solo on the famous recording, explains how he became involved in the recording sessions in 1963. Between rehearsals for a concert of Bach cantatas with the Ortiz Symphony Orchestra and the Philharmonic Choir, he explained how he became a part of musical history. A colleague of mine, um, who was my opposition on the other side, I was on, on Cantoris, so as we walk into the, into the choir stalls, I had to file off to the left, and he was on Decani, which is the other side, so he'd file off to the right. And he was the alternative solo boy, if you know what I'm saying. And one of the few choristers who was there with me who retained his voice after it broke, which is not automatic and actually is quite rare. Michael George, who's a bass singer, who's in fact singing for me in a production here right now. And um, we were playing rugby, we had a rugby match. Uh, We were both in the rugby team and uh, we rushed into the school knowing that we should be already down in the chapel. We were just minutes late at that time, I suppose. And the matron called out to us and said, you know, hurry along, boys. You know, you have to have a quick shower or something like that, which we didn't do. Um, But to go into chapel, um, we at least wore long trousers. And so we had muddy knees. It's as simple as that. We had muddy knees and we just put our black Eton suit and hard white collar and everything on and, uh, and hurried our way down to the chapel. We were the last there and they were already singing. The choir was already in, in full fling and, um, uh, and they were singing, rehearsing, uh, getting a balance for this Allegri recording. Neither Michael nor I um, had any idea what the repertoire was that day. We, 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 did, we weren't thinking, oh, we're going in to record the Allegri Miserere. We were just going in to sing whatever was you know, given us. And um, I remember David Wilcox simply just went down the line of boys. We just sort of came in and he flustered a little bit and said, come on, you, you two, you know, it's a bit late. Um, but tried out a few boys to sing. And, uh, you know, I was part of the way down the line. I was maybe the, one, of, one of the early ones to sort of sing and he just sort of stopped he said he said that sounds very nice Roy um, will you go with the other um, solo singers halfway down to the altar and uh, and it was born
my life developed very quickly after that. My voice didn't break till I was nearly 15 or even 15 and a bit. Seven years later, I was married. Two years later than that, I was a father. (laughs) So um, things changed rather quickly and I was teaching, I remember. My first job was uh, as a music teacher at a a high school. And I remember a, a student coming in on teaching practice well, in his current uh, student days, as it were, they had had a a seance club when they'd listened to the Allegri Miserere at the start of every meeting. I was initially very embarrassed. You know, I wasn't wasn't used to what we think of as fame um, and so on. And um, I'd just done my job. I'd just done my, my, you know, it just felt like a very normal thing to do. I could sing a topsy very easily because I could actually sing an F above top C was my or even an F sharp so my highest note so it wasn't the the highest note I could sing Um, but um, he almost went on his knees and and, and wanted to wash my feet (laughs) you know as a a gesture of of thanks or something you know and I was just embarrassed about it it was really strange later I was very proud of what I'd done and I was also proud, actually, in, in another way, because my youngest son um, was a chorister at Winchester Cathedral. He also sang it, so I have a cassette tape of him singing the Allegri. And my father was a chorister at New College in Oxford, and he also sang the Allegri, although I don't have any record of that. And I have to say, I was wined and dined in royal style, which is, is very nice, um, on several occasions because of that, and I've been very happy to do so ever since. And so it's something now that I'm incredibly proud of. That seminal recording by King's College Cambridge has remained a bestseller to this day. I asked Tim Thurston, presenter of RT Lyric FM's Gloria, who, by the way, has 26 versions of it in his collection, why it has remained so popular. I suppose it's like Vivaldi's Four Seasons because it's very, very popular. And if you make a recording and you put Allegri's Miserere on it, it will sell. It would be only groups, for instance, like the Teller Scholars, who would put a special emphasis on the way that it is done and the and perhaps encourage a certain amount of improvisation. I mean, that's the most interesting aspect, I think, uh, of the performance in the Sistine Chapel, is that... Uh, you know, it was never done the same way twice, that there was always this element of improvisation in its in the embellishments, those, those high embellishments. And groups like the Talis Scholars, who have recorded it a number of times, um, have put an emphasis on um, this improvisatory element and different types of embellishments being used, for instance, in each verse. When the, as the verses can continue, the embellishments get more and more uh, fanciful and, uh, and complex. Most choirs wouldn't dare. I've sung this with St Bartholomew's Choir in Dublin a number of times and the live performances I've heard in Christchurch Cathedral and various other uh, churches in Dublin, uh, you wouldn't have got much improvisation there or there would have been a crack over the knuckles. But some of the professional choirs, certainly the Talis Scholars, certainly some of the very few of the 26, there are only five European choirs, non-UK choirs that have recorded it. And some of them, especially the William Bird Ensemble, which is one that I'm particularly fond of. There is the operatic aspect to it, the improvisatory aspect to it is emphasised.
Some very daring ornaments there in that 2013 recording by the ensemble Richard Bird. Would singers in Allegri's time have taken such liberties with the music? Andrew Johnston again. We know that the papal choir had members who sang top C's in the 19th century during the singing of this polyphonic penitential psalm. I think if anybody in church now uh, singing a solo like that ad libitum introduced a top C, uh, they'd get wrapped over the knuckles for it. So it's quite possible that these embellishments are a a, a bit of misbehaviour that the singers felt they could get away with in complete darkness when nobody could necessarily see who it was who'd been singing this topsy, and at the point where the pontiff is lying prostrate in front of the altar of the Sistine Chapel. Musicians are usually quite an extrovert lot. They like showing off if they're particularly good, and one could say that they probably were if they were in the Sistine Chapel Choir. What else would you expect that there was a bit of showing off? Trying to just do do better than last year and do better than maybe the previous night, you know, come sort of Holy Saturday, uh, they'd heard the Good Friday one, they'd heard the Monday Thursday one, uh, let's let's really give it a bash on early Saturday. So it is like the very best jazz, that if it works, it is absolutely thrilling. You know, there is a chemistry there which makes it very thrilling. Since very early times, masses had not been only based on plain song chants. Uh, now, most were, but uh, a lot more and more, it was the popular songs of the day which provided the basic um, musical material for uh, for mass settings. And this was very, very popular. Now, the church made various attempts to stamp this out, uh, but uh, it, it was a long time dying, and uh, composers very often continued to use uh, popular songs as the basis of, of mass settings. You'd never think that there, buried in among all that gorgeous counterpoint, is the armed man's chanson, but it is there.
I suppose that thought was at the back of my mind when I listened to the Sistine Choir in its present incarnation as a choir of men and boys, almost as Allegri would have known it, singing in St. Peter's Basilica at the funeral of Cardinal Agnelli, recently deceased. And our timing was serendipitous because the late Cardinal had been patron of one of the Roman churches that Allegri sang in before joining the Sistine Choir. The late Cardinal's funeral mass was celebrated with the help of dozens of his fellow Cardinals and presided over by Pope Francis himself. You could say our timing was inspired. So we were back where we started, with Gregorian chant sung by a choir of men and boys presided over by the Pope. Father Michael had one last stop on our journey. The Church of Santa Maria in Vallicella this church held the burial place of members of the Sistine Choir, including Allegri. So here we have the Chapel of the Annunciation with a magnificent painting by Crespi of the angel appearing to Mary at the moment of her Annunciation. And in front of the altar rails we've got a slab which dates from 1792 and it replaces an earlier slab at the opening of the crypt of the Sistine Chapel. So the inscription in Latin reads Cantores Pontifici, and the year is given in 1792. So that would translate the singers of the Papal Chapel, who were united in melody during their lives, in their death wished to be united together and chose this as their resting place. And every time somebody was buried from the Sistine Chapel, all the members of the Sistine Choir sang mass, uh, sang at the mass, the requiem mass, which was conducted at the high altar, and then the cortege came over to this side chapel, and the, the funeral, uh, the coffin was lowered into the crypt below us. And so it was time to say goodbye to Rome and to the world of Allegri's Miserere, with a couple of mysteries still hanging in the air. What happened to the original manuscript? What did Mozart hear? What was in the manuscript that he wrote down and that was later lost? What would a perfect, authentic performance of the Miserere sound like? The more I thought about all these questions, the more I realised that art is not a static thing, but is a constantly changing organic mystery.